The next case on the calendar is 21-55123 Sillane v. Continental Casualty. Counsel, can you hear us? Yes, we can. Both of you? Okay, great. And in the courtroom, we can hear the lawyers, I hope? Yes. Great, okay. Counsel, in that case, we're ready to hear your argument. Good morning, Your Honors. Kirk Passage for Sillane Products. May it please the Court. We're not going to spend a lot of time in our section today, and I would like to reserve two minutes, and I will clock watch to make sure I do. But we're not going to spend much time in what I have to say today to talk about the virus exclusion, because it's missing here. And what also is missing here, and I thought this remarkable, we plan in the complaint Continental's historic knowledge of pandemics. We plan in the complaint that Continental's sworn financial statements disclosed that there was a serious risk to their financial condition that would be posed if a pandemic hit. And we plan what their chairman said, which is their policies don't apply, and I'm quoting this, because of property exclusionary language. Counsel, can I interrupt? Are you talking about extrinsic evidence that was excluded now? Well, the extrinsic evidence, we never reached that issue, because it's in the complaint, and we alleged in the complaint that this was the knowledge. And under California law, which governs here, extrinsic evidence at least must be provisionally considered. Right. So tell me, what is the, before you go into it and discuss the merits of it, I think we have to get to the threshold issue. I'm not sure how the extrinsic evidence helps you. I have that question. But do you want to make sure that we keep a clear demarcation before what we should or should not be considering, please? Sure. The extrinsic evidence, Your Honor, and we cited the Montrose decision, the California Supreme Court decision, which specifically recognized the propriety and the value of insurance industry drafting history, for example, in interpreting standard policy language, number one. Number two, here, our point is simple. These folks had an opportunity to adopt an exclusion. Whether that exclusion works or not, we've heard a big debate about, but they had an opportunity to adopt this exclusion to say we're not going to cover virus-related losses. They knew about it. They made representations that their policies don't cover it because they have that exclusionary language. Well, not so here. These were specifically tailored policies that were directed to small businesses in California, not the Fortune 500, directed to the most vulnerable businesses in California with a promise, express promise, coverage to address those risks. And so we posit, Your Honor, that if an insurance company like Continental knows about pandemics, knows about prior pandemics, has standard language available to it for over a decade that it could use to address those risks, in fact, uses that language in most of its policies and leaves it out in selling policies to small businesses in California, that's a problem. That's the context in which you need to interpret an insurance policy, and that's something that Continental completely ignored below and doesn't even mention in their brief before this court. So we think when you take cases like Pacific Gas and Electric, which is where the California doctrine started, and we recognize, too, that California is an outlier in this country in mandating the consideration of extrinsic evidence, at least provisionally, and in saying that a plaintiff is entitled to conduct discovery to develop that extrinsic evidence. So we have alleged, using Continental's own words, exactly what Continental's knowledge was, and we've alleged their intent, which is not to cover virus-related losses 
when they use an exclusion. And they didn't use the exclusion here. Well, counsel, I mean, um, setting aside that there isn't the exclusion, the virus exclusion, we all understand that. You're still not going to get coverage unless the plain language of the coverage grant encompasses your situation. So the question here is whether what happened triggers this property damage grant of coverage language. Um, and so I, I need you to address that point because that, you know, if, you, if you don't come within that language, whether there's an exclusion or not matters not at all. When, when you're answering Judge Forrest's question, it would help me if you could address the MRI case. Sure, and, and Judge Forrest, I think you've asked the question correctly. Uh, I don't disagree with, we have to start with the coverage grant. But the question of whether it's plain and unambiguous is a different question. And I think MRI Health is a perfect example. You could juxtapose MRI Health with the California Court of Appeals decision in Shade Foods. They kind of look at the same issue. The standard that MRI Health adopts is that you have to have an external force that acts upon the insured property to cause a physical change. We've alleged exactly those things. There is no dispute here that the virus is an external force. It did not exist before the end of 2019. As for whether it changed anything or not, a physical change, our answer to that is yes, based on the science that we alleged in the complaint, the medical evidence we alleged in the complaint that the presence in the air is a physical change. Now, it may not be a visible change to the naked eye, but if you were to examine it just with the pollution cases, those, those cases, the asbestos and building cases, we pointed to Armstrong, uh, the California Court of Appeals decision recognizing that asbestos in the airspace those of the building. Those cases can be distinguished, it seems to me, because they relate to the character of the structure. They relate to something that's embedded in the structure. So what's your best case for, um, I guess it's an air quality argument you're making? Well, it's two things. One is airspace. And in the asbestos case, Armstrong, if you look at that decision, and I spent three and a half years in trial in that case. Um, in San Francisco in Norris Auditorium. And the issue was, it was in the structure, but it was also in the airspace. But do you one. allege that the virus penetrated the, the insured premises here? Yes, is there, we do. Is, is there that allegation? Can you, can you, I don't want to interrupt your answer to Judge Forrest's question, but at some point, if you could give me that record site. Sure, um, I can refer you to, uh, as two examples, uh, excerpt of record uh, 449, paragraph four, Okay. Excerpt of record 462, paragraph 52. And that one specifically talks about the presence of aerosolized droplets in the air and airspace, altering that air and airspace. And yes, that but do, you also, that, do you allege that as to your premises? Is that, was, is that your premise? Yes. We're talking about the airspace of our premises. And also excerpt of record 463, that's paragraphs 53 and 54 of the complaint. But the other thing we allege, and this is part and parcel of it, is we allege that this virus physically attaches to the surfaces of property inside the buildings. And thus the name fomites, which in science means a physical disease transmitting mechanism. It physically alters the surface. Now, the district court on a motion to dismiss, we pled this. And I don't know how the district court could make a factual determination to the contrary because Whatever else you can say about our, our allegations, they are plausible because we cited to the scientific studies so stating. So we had science in our favor, and then you have the question of how do you translate that into this insurance policy and this language? And given that we haven't had the opportunity to, to develop the drafting history, 
on direct physical loss of or damage to property. That was one of our points about discovery. And that's why the courts have recognized we are entitled to develop that evidence to show Judge Forrest in response to your question, whether or not that language in the insuring grant is susceptible to only one reasonable interpretation. I still don't know that I understand your theory. Under MRI, we're looking, right, for alteration of property or dispossession of property. Well, we have- Tell me what exactly is your theory that you think you've got coverage? Sure, the virus is the external force. It physically alters the air and airspace inside of our premises, and it physically alters surfaces by attaching to those surfaces. So those constitute physical alterations. And if you look at the pollution- You're not relying on dispossession. Just to be clear, you're not relying on dispossession. You think you've got alteration of the property? We rely on both. We think we have physical alterations of the property because the virus physically alters the surfaces to which it attaches, and it physically alters the airspace inside a building in which it is found. If you were to put it under electron microscope, you would see that. If you look at the studies we cite, the evidence we cite, this virus physically attaches to surfaces. If I may interrupt at that point, I was unclear on that too. I thought you had conceded that there is no evidence that COVID actually physically adhered to or attached to your property. Am I wrong there? You are, Your Honor. We don't. I think what you're talking about is, do we allege that the virus was physically present in our premises, as opposed to do we allege that the virus physically alters property where it is present? And there's a distinction between the two. I asked the first question. I asked whether you allege the property entered your premises. I mean, sorry, the virus entered your premises. And I thought you said you did, and I've gone to these record sites and they're not. Let me clarify that. I misheard your question, Your Honor. I apologize. Our answer is the virus does cause physical alteration. We don't allege it entered our premises. That is true. What we allege in that regard in the complaint and in our briefing is we succeeded in mitigation. That's the whole point here. Had we not taken mitigation steps, both because of the closure orders and because we needed to mitigate, which we allege right up front in the complaint in paragraph one. And if you look at the AIU decision, the California Supreme Court decision, California Supreme Court recognizes that whether the government tells you to do it or you do it voluntarily, it still can constitute mitigation. And so we had an obligation under this policy to mitigate, take steps to reduce loss. We have an obligation under the common law, Southern California Edison's probably the case most directly on point, to prevent threatened insurable loss. So the reason I talk about physical alteration to property is it is physical alteration if it got there. We should not be penalized because we took steps at the direction of civil authorities to stop the virus from getting on our premises. If you accept the premise, and I agree we're asking you to accept the premise, that there is a physical alteration of property caused by the presence of the virus, whether it's in the airspace, the HVAC systems, or on the surfaces of property. If you accept that physical alteration, then the question for this court is, do we get coverage for mitigation? Because we stopped it from being on our premises by closing. And under insurance code 531B, we do. That's statute and public policy in California. Under AIU, we have the California Supreme Court saying the same thing. And under the other cases we cited, we cited a series of paragraphs in our complaint with allegations there in the 90s, 91, 94, and 98, all in the excerpts of record of 476 to 478, 
where we allege we took mitigation steps. And that's why we didn't have the presence of the virus. So, counsel, I mean, that argument makes logical sense, and I understand why you're making it. But as I read the contract, the policy, it seems to be premised on the idea that a physical harm or damage or loss has occurred, and then you're taking steps. You have to have that trigger that's happened. And your argument is basically we did things so that we never had the physical damage. How do you come within the policy? Because under AIU and Southern California Edison and Young's Market, so two California Supreme Court cases and a court of appeal case, under those decisions, we have a duty to prevent a loss from occurring. And under the common law doctrine of mitigation applied in the insurance context, AIU did that. Applied in the insurance context, whether it's in the policy or not, it's a separate basis. And the law is very clear that an insurer, this is the insurance code section. So your argument is that those California cases give you coverage that the policy language does not? Argument is yes. There's a separate basis for coverage embodied in insurance code 531B that expressly says an insurer is liable if the loss is caused by efforts to prevent the loss. So if you read 531B, if we take efforts to prevent a loss that otherwise would be insured, they have to pay for it. They're liable. That's the statute. Yes. Forgive me, but I think we understand this argument and you wanted to save some time. You're down to two minutes. Would you like to reserve? I would add one other thing, Your Honor, because with respect to the Insurance Trade Association amicus brief that came in, I think it's important to note that they advance a parade of horribles argument about how this would devastate the insurance industry. But you've heard argument and we know that most policies, including most continental policies, have a virus exclusion. If you believe them, then there's no devastation of the insurance industry. What we have here is an insurance company that elected not to take the benefit of insurance language available to it to guard against that very risk that the trade associations warn against. So I think we're in a different circumstance. There is no economic devastation here any more than there was from environmental losses or asbestos losses. There are still plenty of insurance companies around. Continental had the option to address it and elected not to. Thank you. I'll reserve the rest, Your Honor. All right. Let's hear from the court. Thank you for your argument. Counsel, opposing counsel. Thank you, Judge Kristen. Canon Shanmugam of Paul Weiss in Washington for Appley Continental Casualty and affiliate of CNA. May it please the court. This appeal presents the threshold question of whether claims arising from the COVID-19 virus or the stay at home orders issued to protect public health in the wake of COVID-19 fall within the scope of coverage of provisions commonly found in property insurance policies. The district court held that they do not. And that decision was correct. As hundreds of courts in California and beyond have held in dismissing similar claims, the mere loss of use of property does not constitute a direct physical loss of or damage to that property. The California courts have made clear that in order to have direct physical loss or damage, some external force must have acted on the property to cause a physical change in the property's condition. And where is here? It's an external force. Yes, that's right. But there also has to be a physical change, Judge Kristen. And where there is no such physical change and where there's no allegation that anything other than cleaning is necessary to remove the virus from surfaces, or even as I think Mr. Passage now concedes that the virus was actually present at the premises, then the requirement of direct physical loss or damage is not satisfied. 
And even if the microbe exclusion were inapplicable here, as Selene contends, it can't be used to create coverage in the first place. And so our basic submission is that the straightest path to an affirmance here is to hold that Selene simply failed to allege a direct physical loss of or damage to its property. Counsel, given, now, the, I, given the unique circumstances and the sort of widespread impact, why wouldn't we, why shouldn't we certify this question to the California Supreme Court? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't California have a sort of uniform answer for all these cases? So our basic submission, Judge Forrest, is that there simply is no footing in California law for a contrary view. The California courts have already construed this language, and under that construction, there can be only one answer as a matter of law here. And I would note that, that Mr. Passage does not request certification in this case, but I know that it's an issue in the next case, the mud pie case, and so I'm, I'm really happy to address that. And that really brings us squarely back, Judge Forrest, to the text of the policy. And we've already discussed the MRI case, but let me say a couple more things about it. First, the MRI case makes clear that there has to be, in the words of MRI, a distinct demonstrable physical alteration of the property. And this is not something unusual to the California courts. The Court of Appeal in that decision cites Couch on Insurance, the leading treatise, for that interpretation of the direct physical loss or damage requirement. And again, here, even if there had been an allegation that the COVID-19 virus was present at the premises, and there clearly is not in this complaint, our fundamental submission would be that where you have a, a virus, something that can be cleaned up, it doesn't rise to the level of such an alteration. And whether it's the COVID-19 virus or you know, a cold or a flu virus, as a matter of common usage, no one would say that that causes direct physical loss of or damage to property. And the California courts have also made clear, and I think that this also bears on the unambiguity of the policy, that a mere diminution in value is relevant only as a measure of loss. It does not establish coverage in the first place. And so it really would require a sweeping expansion of coverage in order to adopt Selene's position. And as, as this court, and particularly your honors, all of whom I know have experience as state court judges will be aware, uh, this court doesn't certify whenever there's a question of state law. It only certifies when state law is genuinely unsettled. And so our fundamental submission is that it would be a waste of judicial resources, and it would also delay the ultimate resolution of these many cases to certify to the California Supreme Court. Well, I guess to push back on that a little bit, I think that the trend is uh, in your client's favor in terms of how all these cases are getting resolved, but it's not uniform. So that suggests that there, there's some possibility for disagreement in terms of, of what California law would require in this you know, we, I think we all have to say unique situation. So, so I, I back to, um, I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't know what the right answer is sitting here at the moment, but it does seem like this isn't a terrible idea that we would get a uniform answer from the Supreme Authority of California law, which we are not. Judge Forrest, I think what I would say in response to that is given the sheer volume of these cases, it's not surprising that there have been uh, uh, cases that have come out the other way. Again, the overwhelming majority of these cases, both in California and nationwide, have come out in our favor. But I think I'd be content to sort of fall back on existing California law. And I think I would feel differently if Mr. Passage could point to anything 
in pre-COVID-19 California law that pointed in the other direction. But the only cases on which he relies are all cases that not only don't involve this policy language, they don't even involve this type of policy. The three cases on which Mr. Passage relies in his briefs, and he really doubles down on them in his reply brief, uh, are the AIU case, the Armstrong case, and the Hughes case. The AIU and Armstrong cases both involve comprehensive general liability policies with quite different language. The policy in Armstrong, um, which was a CGL policy, broadly covered physical injury, including loss of use. And of course, the facts of that case, as you pointed out in your colloquy with my friend earlier, are obviously different because you're dealing with asbestos, a substance that is embedded in uh, the property. And the Hughes case is even further afield because it involves a homeowner's policy and the question of whether you know, a dwelling includes the ground underneath the building. And so, you know, again, I think that at a minimum for this court to certify, I think that the court would have to have some reason to believe that the California Supreme Court might come out differently. And all of the cases involving this type of policy and this type of uh, this precise language, cases like MRI, Simon Marketing, Doyle, the other cases cited by travelers in the mud pie case, all point to the same conclusion that you have to have some form of physical alteration. And again, it would be a really dramatic step to say that the mere presence of a virus on a surface would give rise to coverage, particularly in what is, after all, a property insurance policy. The whole point is that the trigger they, 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 for coverage- counsel, counsel, forgive me, they don't all require alteration, right? I, I just really keep noticing that you're leaving off dispossession. They require alteration or dispossession. So we may have, I, I'm like uh, Judge Forrest, uh, you know, thought carefully about certification and the need for uniform policy and the need to defer to the state Supreme Court. That speaks uh, close to my heart. But um, this case might be very different if there were an allegation that the virus had penetrated pro property or if I, I wondered about what would happen if an employer said, you know, I had employees who had the virus, so we couldn't get everybody out of the building. And we were really dispossessed. So in some ways, I think it may be difficult to get to a uniform answer. That's, that's my problem. Um, but I but I just want to point out, you keep leaving off dispossessed. Uh, I'm not sure if that's intentional or... Yeah, not at all. Not at all. And, and first of all, Judge Christian, with regard to the language, the language in these um, policies is language concerning direct physical loss of or damage to the property. And you're correct that some of the case law, and particularly the total intermodal case, which I think is a federal district court case in diversity, talks about complete dispossession of property. That was a case involving the property that was erroneously sent to China and then destroyed. I think everyone would concede there's total dispossession in those circumstances. And we would freely um, recognize that where you have you know, a total loss, whether it's theft of personal property or say you know, a tornado that destroys the entire property rather than merely blowing out the windows, that that would constitute loss. But again, what we have here on the allegations of this complaint is not an allegation of total dispossession in that sense. And a, a, again, I think that, that what we're really talking about here is, you know, at most uh, a, a suggestion that uh, uh, the COVID-19 virus, you know, uh, was ubiquitous. There isn't even an allegation that it was present on the premises here. And you could certainly resolve this case just on that ground, I think I would submit as counsel for uh, uh, the insurer here that it would be beneficial for the court 
to say more broadly that regardless of whether or not you have that allegation, there is simply not direct physical loss or damage where you simply have, at most, an allegation that the virus is present at the premises. So unless the court has any further questions about um, the text, I would just say two other things in response to other points that um, Mr. Passage made today. The first is that he um, suggested that there could be recovery um, for mitigation, even in the absence of an allegation that the virus was present at the premises. And as we say in our briefs, uh, our, our fundamental submission, and this comes back to the reason why I think the absence of an allegation that there was physical presence, you know, should not be dispositive of the analysis, is that if the presence of the virus does not give rise to direct physical loss or damage, then the mitigation claim fails as well. Second, I want to say just a word about the microbe exclusion and uh, the absence of an exclusion that explicitly refers to viruses. Our submission, as our briefs make clear, is that the microbe exclusion would cover the presence of a virus because it broadly covers all organisms and microorganisms. But more generally, even if you didn't agree with that, the California courts are clear, and this is yet another respect in which I would submit certification is improper. The California courts have made clear that you have to start with the coverage provisions and determine whether a claim falls within the policy terms before even considering exclusions. That's the Waller case. And what I would respectfully submit that um, Selene is attempting to do here is to suggest that the mere possibility that you could have an even more express exclusion is a reason to reverse engineer coverage. And the courts make clear that you can't use an exclusion to expand coverage. It may be true going forward that insurers would include an express exclusion for the COVID-19 virus um, as a sort of belt and suspenders way of making even clearer that the COVID-19 virus is not included. But it doesn't follow from that, and it doesn't follow even from the fact that an exclusion is inapplicable, that there is somehow coverage. And it might be different if this was a situation in which the microbe exclusion would be a complete nullity under our interpretation of the coverage provisions, but certainly there are circumstances in which you could have a microbe, say, you know, a fungus that causes a physical alteration, like, say, dry rot or wet rot, and um, uh, assuming for the moment that there is no independent exclusion that would apply, in those circumstances, you would have coverage that could lead to exclusion under the microbe exclusion, which simply proves that the microbe exclusion, in fact, does some work under this policy. So again, to the extent that Mr. Passage in his argument suggested that uh, the presence of a microbe exclusion and the failure to include a more express exclusion is somehow significant as a textual matter, uh, that doesn't um, carry any weight here. And then finally, with regard to where uh, Slane's argument started, uh, I, I think it is quite clear, as Judge Kristen, I think your question suggested, that uh, you don't even get to the question of extrinsic evidence unless you have some ambiguity in the policy language. And as Mr. Levy said in the last argument, one thing you certainly can't do is use extrinsic evidence to expand otherwise unambiguous coverage provisions. And so our fundamental submission here is that this language, the direct physical um, uh, loss of or damage to language, is unambiguous, 
it has an established meaning under the California case law. And there is simply no reason to, to think that a California court would reach a contrary result. And this court should make clear that that language uh, does not provide coverage uh, based on allegations of the mere presence of the COVID-19 virus. Unless the court has any further questions, we would ask that the judgment of the district court be affirmed. Does not appear that there are additional questions. Thank you for your argument, counsel. Great, thank you. Counsel, I think Ron, we have a little less than a minute left. Go right ahead. Uh, number one, uh, I think counsel misunderstands and misstated California law. You don't take a look and say you have to have an ambiguity first before you look at extrinsic evidence. That may we be understand. We understand. Great. Number two, um, Hughes is just like the CNA policy or a package policy to involve both liability provision and a property provision that had the same language we're talking about here. And there, there was no physical alteration. And there, the Hughes court warned insurers, if you want to require a physical alteration, you need to put a clause in there. They didn't do it. Um, three, on the question of certification, I find it interesting that We've just heard an argument that it's beneficial to get a ruling, but we don't want the court whose law it is to apply to make that decision. We didn't ask for certification. We deferred to this court for that decision. But I would submit, look at, look at couch 148.46, which he refers to, because it says the issue in a property policy, I'm quoting, is conceptually similar to the liability insurance threshold trigger of property damage. That's why we cite AIU. That's why we cite Armstrong. We go to Hughes because of the dispossession point. Barring questions, um, we would submit, Your Honor, and thank you. All right, thank you both for your arguments. They're very helpful and we appreciate your careful preparation and we will take that case under advisement and go on to the next case on our calendar.